Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. We have today on our, as a guest our good friend, Dr. Caleb Kaltenbach. Uh, he's been on, been with us on the podcast several times in dealing dealing with matters of the church and sexuality, uh, and connecting meaningfully with the LGBTQ community. Uh, you might you might be familiar with him from his very popular, very uh, widespread selling book called Messy Grace, which is his a, a bit of his own personal story about how he got involved in this area. We want to focus on we'll hear a little bit about that in just a minute, but we want to focus on a, a new book that he has out called Messy Truth, uh, subtitled How to Foster Community Without Sacrificing Conviction. So Caleb Caleb's a former pastor, he's a Talbot grad, now works in, in consulting and speaking and writing, consulting with churches and other Christian organizations about how best to navigate this space uh, with the LGBTQ conversation. So Caleb, welcome. Great to have you with us. You're always a, you're always a treat to have on, uh, so we're so glad you could be with us. Well, thanks for having me. I love both you guys and love Biola Talbot and what is happening there. So thank you for what you guys do. So you've been, you've been with us on on several occasions. You've told the story of your upbringing. You also told it in your book, Messy Grace. But for our listeners who are new to us and new to you and your work, tell us a little bit about what kind of family you grew up in and how it impacted you. Sure. My parents were both uh, university professors and uh, in uh, Missouri, Columbia, Missouri. And they divorced when I was two years old, and both of them went into same-sex relationships. And that's uh, basically the environment that I was raised in, raised by my mother and her partner um, and, until my mother's partner died 22 years later of uh, cancer. And then my, my dad, he was also uh, in same-sex relationships, but never a monogamous partner like my mom. And um, my mom and her partner were activists, and I just grew up hating Christians because I believe that Christians hated gay people. And then I joined a Bible study to learn how to disprove the Bible, um, and that worked out real well because I became a Christian. And then I ended up um, coming out to my parents as a Christian and going to Bible college and seminary. And uh, later on, at the ages of 69, 70, my mom and dad actually gave their life to the Lord. So... Um, it, it was just a, a tremendous um, example of God's grace, and which is why I do what I do now, because I feel like I, I've kind of experienced uh, both worlds, the LGBTQ community and also the uh, Christian community as well. Now, Caleb, you, you also describe in, uh, in your book, Messy Truth, you describe that you had, you had some tough church experiences early in your Christian life, too. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I remember taking my mom to uh, a church that I was preaching at back in the day. Uh, when I was in Bible college, it was a town of 50 people in the middle of Missouri. 25 of those 50 were in the church I was preaching at on the weekends. I think we were the largest church per capita uh, in the nation at that time. We had half of our town one for Christ. And so uh, my mom finally came there after I had preached there for 18 months the next Sunday, she didn't come with me, but when I showed up at the church, one of the elders at the church said, we want to talk to you. And I said, sure. And they basically said, if you want to keep preaching here, uh, don't ever bring somebody like your mother again. Wow. And so that was the day when I when I quit that church, uh, and I 
uh, was like, you know, I, I want to go somewhere and I want to be a part of a church uh, that is not concerned about messy people and even sees their own mess before identifying the mess in other people's lives. Caleb, from the moment I met you, these kind of experiences you're describing have clearly formed your ministry, but rather than being kind of angry about it, I think it's motivated you to be that much more gracious, but also wise in navigating these relationships. And whenever people ask me, churches, Christian schools, universities, who can help us navigate some of these laws regarding LGBTQ issues, I always say, you got to talk to my man, uh, Caleb Kaltenbach. What, tell us what you do with these different organizations and why navigating this area is just so complicated today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I help churches develop systems and processes that will honor their theological convictions and their values, uh, but also allow LGBTQ individuals to attend church, uh, to get involved in small groups, and even to serve in some places, because ultimately people find and follow Jesus better in community than in isolation. Um, and I do similar work for uh, Christian colleges and seminaries. Uh, there are three, uh, two Christian universities right now that I'm working with on a monthly basis, and then one Christian college uh, that are going through the ringer with uh, some of their uh, former faculty, current faculty, and students. And so I'm, I'm helping uh, those Christian universities, those institutions to be able to hold on to their theological convictions as well, you know, and, and understanding what the law allows as far as uh, lawful discrimination and the application of their theological convictions to their admissions policies and employment practices. But then also, uh, how can they create room and really minister to uh, sexual minorities or students who feel like they're sexual minorities on their campus. And I and I really feel like this is a, a complex issue for uh, churches and Christian educational institutions and, and really Christians in general for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think anytime um, you have a society and you have uh, God's program, there's going to be a clash between the two. Hmm. Um, you, you just can't uh, help but notice that. Um, you know, in his latest work, Carl Truman, uh, in his book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he talks about the second world and third world um, uh, 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 point, points of view when it comes to moral morality. And he talks about, you know, second world individuals being people where their morals are based on their faith and their morals transcend, uh, you know, the, this world right here. But people in third world moralities and people that have that view, uh, their sense of morality is based on themselves. And so I think in our society, uh, just naturally, because of our sin nature, our our own, uh, our, our self will always be the, the, the foundation for where we want to place our morals. And I think we really have to work to try to put our morals and base them in Christ. So you're always going to have that clash. I think a second reason why we have this um, so-called, uh, uh, you know, clash is because there's really a failure to acknowledge the deep nuance that exists when it comes to conversations about faith and sexuality. Uh, the Bible might be clear on what it says about sexual intimacy and affection. But the Bible itself acknowledges the deep nuance of uh, humanity in every single individual and our fallen nature and just everything that we've experienced. So I think that a failure to acknowledge that nuance really creates a lot of problems. So Caleb, let's, let's be just crystal clear about this. 
you know, you you, you hold the the Bible's message on sexuality is really clear, and it's it's it's, it's in tr- traditional marriage between one man and one woman, sexual intimacy only within the context of of that view of marriage, but that the application of it in a in a fallen, broken world is what's so messy, right? Because because tr- truth is not truth in its in and of itself is not messy. It's the application of it. Right, right. And truth can look messy. Truth can feel messy. Um, I think you even look at Jonah in the end of Jonah chapter four, and he's upset when he gets confronted with the truth that God loves people and God is willing to give people as many chances as he can to repent and come to faith. And that is a truth. That is grace, but that's also a truth. And truth can look and feel messy, even though truth is perfect and pure and enduring uh, from God's point of view. Now, Caleb, since since we talked last, uh, Christian institutions are facing a new pressure in the Equality Act, um, and you know we'll, I think the jury's still out on whether that's going to pass all the way through the houses of Congress. But President Biden has vowed to sign it if it does. Uh, tell our listeners just briefly what is the Equality Act about, and how do you think that will impact Christian institutions? Well, the Equality Act basically, in so many ways, amends Title Seven and Title Nine of um, of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that, that basically uh, amends it to include gender identity and sexual orientation uh, under protected classes. And the Equality Act also uh, basically strips away any power that the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 has in protecting religious institutions. Uh, from implementing um, uh, rules and policies about gender identity and sexual orientation that go against their theological convictions. Um, and, and the Equality Act is extremely troubling because of that. There are some good things in the Equality Act that definitely need to happen, but the negative far outweighs the good. And this has been something that has been in front of Congress uh, since uh, the early 70s, about every other year, or every three years or so. And it's going to continue to be in front of Congress again and again. Um, I personally don't think that it will pass the Senate unless uh, something changes with the filibuster, which is highly unlikely. But here's here's why churches do need to be concerned about this. Uh, number one, um, eventually it will, I mean, if, if it keeps going like this, eventually it will pass the Senate. Number two, um, I was working with one church that will remain unnamed where they're, they're in a city and the city council passed an ordinance in so many ways that replicates the Equality Act. So now they're having to deal with uh, the the implications of the Equality Act on a city level, which if you've done any work in churches whatsoever, you know that the city can get up in your business as much as, yeah. as, much as the federal government. And so I had to meet with that church um, not too long ago and sit down with them. And they're a fairly large church, like one of the top 10 largest in the nation. And they're asking questions like, okay, what does it mean to be a public accommodation? What does this mean for our bathrooms? Because they've already had city workers coming in and seeing what they're doing at this particular campus. And so um, the aspects of the Equality Act can find themselves in other bills on the federal level, state level, but especially on the city level. And so the, the, the point for us is not to come at this from a point of fear and reaction, but to think ahead strategically, intentionally, and empathetically so that we can put ourselves in the best position to leverage wherever we are in society 
for the gospel. So walk me through maybe some of the most common things you're doing with churches, like, or even with Christian schools. Some of the first two or three things you say, you've got to change this and adapt this, that seem to bubble to the surface. Yeah, yeah. So with um, Christian schools, uh, it's a lack of resources for LGBTQ students. It's a lack of uh, the school being willing to consider a, um, a, uh, some kind of a student gathering or student club, for lack of a better phrase. Um, you know, e- even if it's underneath the guise of the school itself, um, I found that when a school has very little resources or very little uh, margin for students to be able to share with others and find support, that there's going to be a, a big bubbling crisis there. So that that's a that's a huge aspect. Hey, let, let me uh, jump that in on that one time and time again. Let me jump in that one real fast. Like a place like Biola, there would be a club for students with same sex attraction to talk, to share, to find support. That'd be very different than a club that says we're here to promote. LGBTQ ideas. Is that what you mean? Yes. Make that yes, distinction for me. Yeah. Thank you so much for clarifying that. That's exactly what I mean. A, a place of support and a place to be able to share, not a place for a cause or a movement to start. It, it's not a place to uh, to promote ideals that are contrary to the university or college's uh, values or doctrinal statement. So yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, 100%. That's what I meant. Thank you for that distinction. Uh, when it comes to churches, I have found that um, churches really miss the boat if they don't have places in their, within their body, within their body of believers, within that local church for people to serve, even if they don't believe in God. Um, and what I mean by that is that I really think that uh, serving and volunteering uh, is a new way of engaging people, especially in a society that is so focused on justice. Um, a friend of mine named Judd Wilhite, who is the senior pastor of Central Church uh, in Las Vegas, and they, it's a huge church, about 18,000 people. They took the lead in Vegas when the MGM shooting happened at the MGM Grand. And when that happened, they really mobilized their adult small groups to go out into the community and to serve uh, families of people who were killed, workers at the MGM Grand, people who were hurt. They even had small groups drive to other nearby states to uh, go check in on people. And whenever a big catastrophe like that happens or chaos, people want a way to respond. And so people started calling the church there and they said, hey, I'm not a Christian or I don't go to your church, uh, but I want to help. Can I join one of your groups? And they said yes. And during that time, just because people were joining their groups that, that were going out into the community, they had one of the biggest spiritual and conversion growth periods that they've ever had, not because of what was happening in a main worship auditorium, but because of what was happening relationally in those small groups. And so part of my argument is, is I believe that if churches really, you know, decide where their boundaries should be, and what they hold dear theologically, and so on and so forth, that there should be room for people to be able to volunteer, because that's just such a great way to engage on church people and unbelievers. Caleb, I'm thinking maybe a little bit more broad, more broadly, culturally, uh, where we hear this all the time that you know lots of people believe that Christian organizations they're just simply on the wrong side of history when it comes to sexuality and marriage, and that I think it's 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 fairly widespread in the broader culture that the belief that eventually all of them will change their views, since a lot of since many of them have already. How do you how do you respond to that particular 
argument? Um, I, I would I would respond to that argument a, a couple ways. First and foremost, I would say that people made that same argument after Roe versus Wade passed, even mm. some time after Roe versus Wade passed, and you still have this statistic that seems to hover around mm. 60% in favor, 40% not in favor, or even sometimes 50, 50, 55%, you know, and then, uh, 45% or whatever you want to say, you, you still have this whole uh, element where it, it seems to be divided somewhat evenly. And even those, even those statistics I wonder about, because again, that's ignoring a nuance that's creating, a. uh, uh, an, an us an either or option a false dichotomy almost and again i'm 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 pro-life uh from you know birth through death and so on and so forth uh but my point is is that is that the way those questions are worded some of the times that people feel like they have no other choice rather than to answer uh the way that would make them seem like they are uh pro-choice. Now, if you take this and you apply this to um, gay marriage and sexuality and so on and so forth, number one, um, you know, so many people say, well, 70% of the American populace is in support of the Equality Act. Okay, well, I'm willing to bet that about 99% of those 70% of people have not even read the Equality Act. They don't even know what's in it. And who wants to be the person that says, yeah, I don't support the Equality Act. I mean, who wants to say that? We're all paranoid that the government's watching us and Steve Jobs is still watching us from somewhere on our Apple phones. So who wants to be the person to say that? The other thing I would say this is that when people you know, say, hey, you need to do this or else you're going to be left behind, they fail to recognize the nuance that people experience between theological views and civil views on the same issue. There are a lot of people, more and more that I talk to, who say, well, you know, same-sex marriage is legal, so I think that if somebody wants to get married to somebody of the same sex, they should have that right because it's legal. But theologically, or my biblical belief is, is that people shouldn't do that. And so that's my biblical belief, but if it's legal, people should be able to have that right. And there's no space in any of those polls for people to share that nuance because I think that uh, for a lot of people, there is that that nuanced view of, well— you know, I, I want to support what society says and the rights for people to be able to do that and to have benefits. But then on the other hand, um, I have my theological view. And so I, I, you know, there could be the fact where we'd be on the wrong page of history. But honestly, I know that you guys aren't, and I'm not either really concerned about that because I really do believe in what God says about, you know, the marriage covenant and that relationship. And I think that there's a lot more nuance than what, you know, people would admit. Yeah, and the early church was clearly on the wrong side of the culture in in the first century on, yeah. on most things. Oh, oh, and that those polls would have been like 90% 10, <laughs> right, right? Come right. on. Caleb, I get emails, I get calls just asked regularly of parents whose kids are coming out as LGBTQ people who's friends and they're just clueless how to respond and they want to maintain the relationship but they also want to be loving and stand on principle you maintain that having convictions on sexuality doesn't mean betraying people who may be close to you how do you navigate those two things yeah um thanks for that question because i think that's important i think that it's super important for um 
for a lot of parents today. I get a lot of those same questions, Sean. I know Scott does too. And that hits home for a lot of us because everyone knows someone or everyone knows someone who knows someone. So uh, that really impacts all of us. And anytime you have a face associated with uh, one of the letters in the uh, sexual minority uh, acronym, LGBTQ+, all of a sudden, it's not just a bunch of letters, it's a bunch of people. And I think that's important for us as we develop empathy. So I, I would say I would say this, that first and foremost, we need to acknowledge the reality that individuals have. Because I think I've said this before, and I think I've said this on this show before, that there is a difference between acceptance and agreement. Acceptance yep. is about loving people where they're at, no matter what. Um, it, it's about, you know, walking with them, you know. Uh, like Jesus asked us to go the extra mile. We may not be able to walk a mile uh, in somebody's shoes, but we can walk miles next to people. Um, and, and then on the other hand, we have agreement. And nowhere does the Bible say that we have to agree with everybody's decision, everybody's relationship, everybody's job occupation, everybody's life choices. And so there has to be that differentiation between acceptance and agreement. And when you don't have that differentiation, you know that you're dealing with an extremist. Um, and so I think we need to to make that differentiation because here's the thing. For most people, when they come out, they probably they know that you're probably not going to be excited about it. They know that you're probably not going to agree. The deeper, more burning issue in their heart is, are you still going to remain in my life? That's right. Is this going to change anything? And that's where I say it shouldn't change how you feel about someone. Now, depending on the cases, depending on the situation, maybe there are more boundaries. Like if you're a parent and you're dealing with a young kid, I don't know the kid's relationships. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. But in and of itself, you know, Paul says in Romans 13, 8 through 10, that loving your neighbor fulfills the Old Testament law, which sounds really good on the surface. And I love that. But it also makes everything even more binding because think about all the ways that we don't love our neighbor on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. And so that's where I say that loving people really doesn't have a ton to do with my view on marriage. It doesn't have a ton to do with my view of sexual intimacy or affection. I can disagree with people on those things and still love them because my love for another person is not reliant on any of those uh, theologies. My love for another person is reliant and empowered by my relationship with Jesus Christ. So, Caleb, let me take this a, st a step further, if I might, um, because you know we, we want we, we want to ex be able to accept people where they are, uh, and I think that distinction between acceptance and agreement is crucial. Because culturally, those are being fused today, I think, in some very unhelpful ways. But we also want to inspire people to follow Jesus at the same time. So how, how can a church or a Christian institution acknowledge the realities about an LGBTQ person's life, their same-sex or bisexual attraction, their pain from church experience, you know, a, a, a number of other things— and inspire them to follow Jesus well at the same time. Yeah. Well, I, I think, number one, we have to treat people like anyone else. Um, like I say in some of my sermons sometimes when I talk about this topic, uh, you need to treat people like homo sapiens. And there's always a pause in the audience <laughs> where people are kind of look offended. And I'm like, um, 
listen, homo sapien means human being. And depending on the state where I'm in, I'll make fun of the state and say, I don't know if you've learned that here, but homo (laughs) sapiens is all of us, right? We need to treat people like people. And we need to love people. And so that's first and foremost, that nobody's your special evangelistic project um, where you can try out your new evangelistic moves on them. You've got to just love them and develop a good relationship with them and earn the right, build enough influence in their life to earn the right to speak into their life so that when life hits the bottom of the barrel, you are one of the first people that they text or call. And you're able to speak into their life in that moment. And that's when your words carry the most weight. One of the questions uh, that I talk to churches about when they're really considering how much they really want to get involved in this, a lot of them are asking the wrong question instead of the right question. The wrong question is, what's at stake if we end up engaging the LGBTQ people in our community or in our church? That's the wrong question. The right question is, What's at stake if we don't engage the LGBTQ people in our church or in our community or in our school? What's at stake if we don't? That's the main question that we need to be asking. And the answer is everything. The answer is their lives. The answer is their spiritual lives. The answer is their eternity. The answer is the the potential that they have of, of being a follower of Jesus. And I think that's tremendously important. I, yeah, I think we concur. That's that's critical to frame it in that way. Caleb, one one final question for you, and just when when it comes to the future of Christian organizations and LGBT issues, what is the one thing that you are most worried about, and the one thing that gives you the most hope going forward? Um, the one thing that I'm worried about is how. Um, uh, the liberals of the 1980s and 90s are more like the moderates today, and uh, you have the liberals are t- of today are more progressive. And when I say liberals, I mean uh, socially, theologically liberal, um, I, and I'm not trying to cast dispersions, but I'm saying that um, the progressives of today are acting a whole lot like the cultural fundamentalists of the 1980s and 90s, and that concerns me a lot because I feel like uh, they have become the very people that they swore that they would never be. What gives me the most hope is how much I see um, uh, uh, Gen Z and uh, students and Gen Z kids and, and even kids like mine who are in middle school who are younger than Gen Z, how much they love Jesus and how much they love people. And there's a real dedication for Jesus. That gives me the most hope. Wow, this has been super helpful, Caleb. And I, I guess if, if if among our listeners, if you're a pastor or involved in church leadership or in leadership in a Christian organization and want someone to help you navigate these issues, uh, both Sean and I, I think, would agree that Caleb Kaltenbach is one of the top two or three go-to people in the country on this. So, Caleb, if people want to reach you, to talk further, to engage your services, to consult with their organization, how would they how how would they best get in touch with you? Absolutely, I have uh, two websites. One is my ministry website, which is messygracegroup.org, and then my personal website is calebcultenbach.com. 
you can go to either one of those and find me there, and I'd be happy to talk with you. Great. That, that, I think that, that's really helpful. And I want to also commend to our listeners uh, your latest book called Messy Truth, uh, which is about maintaining community and maintaining convictions at the same time in this area where it is so challenging to do so at the present time. So, Caleb, thank you so much for being with us. As, as always, super enlightening, super helpful stuff, and may the, may the Lord bless your ministry and working with churches and other Christian organizations in the months to come. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including the new fully online bachelor's program in Bible theology and apologetics. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more about that. If you enjoyed today's conversation with our good friend Caleb Kaltenbach and, and about his book, Messy Truth, Give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.